said you are the highest money maker mafia boss outside of Al Capone. You were making six to eight mil a week. I never aspired to be a made man. I was 17 years old when my dad drew a 50-year prison sentence. My best friend was walking me into a room, but the setup was bad. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, I might have gotten killed that night. So there's a lot of people I sit down with and I meet, but uh, Michael, I have to tell you, you're, you're one of the most fascinating people that I've been looking forward to sitting down with. And you had Nikki Eyes. What's up, guy? And Mikey Francesi. Yeah, when you hear about the modern day, not even a modern day, you know the movie Godfather, everybody has the poster, and you, you watch the movie and you hear about Michael Corleone, and you think, is there really a character like that? You pretty much are the real life Michael Corleone per se of that story, right? So it's exciting to be sitting out with you. Appreciate you for uh, uh, making the time and welcoming us to your place here. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I have been compared, obviously, to uh, to Michael. Uh, I think it's a good comparison at times because uh, Al Pacino, uh, he played a terrific role in that movie. Yeah, and there is a certain flow that I watch in the movie with him and I see with you where the mannerisms it's amazing how close that is uh with the mannerisms that you have on the way you speak so let's get right into it uh, if you don't know michael franzisi let me give you some stats here's the best way to uh open it up so you'll know who we're sitting down with so in 1986 uh fortune magazine november 10th fortune magazine does an article saying the 50 biggest mafia bosses right and and when you go through this the part in here that's fascinating to me is the following. They have you down on 18th place, right? And then they had John Gotti at 13. So you look at this and you say, well, you're 18, Gotti is 13, and then you have Anthony Salerno at first, and you have some of these other names, Persico, Carmine Persico, who you work with very closely for many years, Salvatore Santora, some of these names that people know about. The part that I looked at Michael, there's not a single person on this list where their age starts with the number three except for you. Gotti was 46, you were 35. So we're not just talking about somebody who made it to the high level of the Colombo family, the five families, the Colombo family yourself. You did it at 35 years old. How was it being raised into that environment and that family? I would say I had a good role model as far as um you know, my dad being a, a real person of substance in that life. And, uh, you know, I love my father. He was, uh, he was everything to me growing up. And, um, you know, he was an important figure there. And it's not that I tried to emulate him, uh, Patrick, because I never thought I would be part of that life growing up. You know, I had different thoughts. I was going to, you know, I was an athlete. I was going to school. I was going to be a doctor. Uh, but once I made the decision to get into that life, I had, as far as I was concerned, the best guy in the world to, to model myself after, and that was my dad. I learned a lot from him. Directly watching all the things that was taking place. Yeah, just the way he carried himself, you know, the way people respected him, the respect that he had for my mother and, and my sisters, and just the way he carried himself, you know. And uh, he was a man's man. And, you know, from the time I was five years old, my father drummed it into my head. You know, Michael, you have to be a man's man. That's the standard in life you have to live up to. He, in many ways, formed the person that, uh, that I became later on in life. He had so much street credit that you can tell if somebody did something to you and they knew who your dad was, there was a line. Like, you couldn't mess with it. How was it being raised in that environment? 
Well, it was different. You know, I, I always tell the story. Uh, I was an athlete, and uh, baseball was really my sport. And uh, my dad would never miss a game, no matter what he was doing. Mob business, legit business. I'd be playing ball, he'd show up. He'd always come to the field late, and he'd pull up in a big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. He'd get out of the car, dress sharp in a suit, and he'd always have five or six guys with him because he never traveled alone. And I'd be up to bat, and they'd walk out on the field, and the umpire would take one look at him and never call strike three on me. So, I mean, it had his advantages, you know, being uh, Sonny Francis' son. You know, he, uh, he was just a great father, you know, and obviously I knew there was something different about him, but my dad never spoke about it in the house. Really? Never. So you didn't really know fully what was taking place? Never from him. I knew because he was such a high-profile figure that we lived in an environment where law enforcement was around us all the time. And he was under surveillance from five or six different agencies, from the feds right down to all the state and locals. So they would park cars around our house and follow us wherever we went. And, you know, I viewed them at that time as the enemy because I viewed my dad as my hero. And so I knew who he was. I obviously read the papers. He had a lot of press. Um, and I, I observed things, but never from his mouth. He would never bring it into the house. For, in the house, we were just a family. That didn't exist. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There are six areas I'd like to touch up on here with you. One is story on how that life was. Two, how the game, because you wrote a book, I'll make you an offer, you cannot refuse. The game between what you had to experience and how similar that is on the corporate side. I think there's a lot to be learned from the entrepreneurs who uh, watch this. How, do I, how to identify a conciliary, I really want to stay on that because what it means to be a conciliary, how do you identify it, it's a very uh, fascinating way you talk about it. And I love my father. He was uh, he was everything to me growing up, and um, you know he was an important figure there. And it's not that I tried to emulate him, uh, Patrick, because I never thought I would be part of that life growing up. You know, I had different thoughts. I was gonna, you know, I was an athlete. I was going to school. I was going to be a doctor. Uh, but once I made the decision to get into that life, I had, as far as I was concerned, the best guy in the world to to model myself after, and that was my dad. I learned a lot from him directly watching all the things that was taking place. Yeah, just the way he carried himself, you know, the way people respected him, the respect that he had for my mother and, and my sisters, and just the way he carried himself, you know. And uh, he was a man's man. And, you know, from the time I was five years old, my father drummed it into my head, you know, Michael, you have to be a man's man. That's the standard in life you have to live up to. He, in many ways, formed the person that, uh, that I became later on in life. He had so much street credit that you can tell if somebody did something to you and they knew who your dad was, there was a line, like you couldn't mess with it. How was it being raised in that environment? Well, it was different, you know, I, I always tell the story. Uh, I was an athlete and uh, baseball was really my sport and uh, my dad would never miss a game, no matter what he was doing, mob business, legit business. I'd be playing ball, he'd show up. He'd always come to the field late and he'd pull up in a big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. He'd get out of the car, dress sharp in a suit and he'd always have five or six guys with him because he never traveled alone. 
and I'd be up to bat, and they'd walk out on the field. The umpire would take one look at him and never call strike three on me. So, I mean, it had his advantages, you know, being uh, Sonny Francis' son. You know, he uh, he was just a great father, you know, and obviously I knew there was something different about him, but my dad never spoke about it in the house. Really? Never. So you didn't really know fully what was taking place? Never from him. I knew because he was such a high-profile figure that we lived in an environment where law enforcement was around us all the time. And he was under surveillance from five or six different agencies, from the feds right down to all the state and locals. So they would park cars around our house and follow us wherever we went. And, you know, I viewed them at that time as the enemy because I viewed my dad as my hero. And so I knew who he was. I obviously read the papers. He had a lot of press. Um, and I, I observed things, but never from his mouth. He would never bring it into the house. For, in the house, we were just a family. That didn't exist. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There are six areas I'd like to touch up on here with you. One is story on how that life was. Two, how the game, because you wrote a book, I'll make you an offer, you cannot refuse. The game between what you had to experience and how similar that is on the corporate side. I think there's a lot to be learned from the entrepreneurs who uh, watch this. How do I, how to identify a conciliary? I really want to stay on that because what it means to be a conciliary, how do you identify it? It's a very uh, fascinating way you talk about it in the book. Human nature, you know, how do you read the, through the BS and how do you read through some people that are trying to take advantage of you? What are some of the things that you saw? Uh, and then some side questions about characters and then some fun questions at the end that we'll go through. So why don't we get into it as far as when you knew and you said, I want to get in. How did you get into the whole, you know, family? I want to become a made man. How did that whole experience take place with you? You know, Patrick, I never aspired to be a, a, a made man. You know, I, uh, I was on a different path in life. But uh, I was 17 years old when my dad drew a 50-year prison sentence and uh, went off to serve his federal time. And... I sat with my dad, I visited him in uh, the federal jail before they shipped him off to the penitentiary, and he said to me, Michael, I'm innocent. I didn't commit this crime. He was alleged to have masterminded a nationwide string of bank robbers. He said, I never knew the witnesses. I'm not a bank robber. The witnesses were all drug addicts, junkies, and one thing I knew, my dad hated anything to do with drugs. My whole life he preached against her. He would make up stories about drug addicts to scare me never to take drugs. So I knew he would never bother with people like this, so I believed him. And when he went away, Joe Colombo, the boss of our family, who we were close with, he kind of took me under his wing because my dad was his underboss. And I started to meet a lot more of my dad's friends, you know, and they were influencing me. Mike, you know, what are you doing going to school? I was a pre-med student at, at that time, uh, shortly after that. You know, if you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. So I went to see him in Leavenworth, and I said, Dad, I'm not going to school. You're going to die in here if I don't help you. He didn't want that. I mean, he kind of argued, no, I want you to go to school, get an education. I said, Dad, it's too late. My mind is made up. And he said to me, he said, if you're going to be on the street, then I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. And he proposed me at that point uh, for membership into the life. And you know the interesting thing, Pat? My, my father, even at that point, never told me what the life was about. Because, you know, you're not supposed to talk about that life with anybody outside of it. And he wouldn't violate that policy, even with me, his own son. My dad's a good soldier. He just said, go home, somebody would be in touch with you, do whatever you're told. It was kind of on-the-job training. And uh, two weeks later, I sat with the boss, and, uh, you know, he ran things down for me and uh, told me what to expect. And for the next year and a half, I was kind of a recruit, where I kind of learned the life, how to do anything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. 
And then uh, Halloween night, 1975, is when uh, I was formally inducted into that life. You remember it vividly? Vividly, yeah. And how was, what was that process like? Was there a ritual? Was there an experience you had to go through? Very, very solemn ceremony, very serious. Uh, six of us walked into a room individually towards midnight that night. It was a very secure setting, obviously. I walked into a room, the boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, the underboss in the area to his left and right, and all of our couple regimes are captains alongside of them. And uh, I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, I held out my hand, he took a knife right here, cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor, this is a blood oath. I cupped my hands, he took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it in my hands and lit it aflame. It didn't hurt, it, it burned quickly, it was just symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life until La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. And that's it. That's the ritual. That's uh, it's wow. short and sweet, but extremely serious. Now, there were six of you. The, the... Six of us. We went in individually. You take it alone. Got it. And then out of these six, apparently you're the only one that's alive. They're all dead. They're all dead. Now, one of them died in natural causes. Every one of them were murdered. Wow. So why are you still here? You know, because if you if you read the story and you 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 put yourself out there, and it's not like you went and you ratted people out or you became an informant. There's nothing there that people will say. Even some of the guys that were upset that you stepped away, they don't call you informant. They just say, you know, it's impressive to see that he was able to make it, and we're proud of him. Even some of your enemies are saying good things about you. What, how did, how was that process for you? Never hear somebody survive when they leave the family. How did that happen with you? Well, you know, Patrick, I don't, I, I didn't have any grand plan because there's no blueprint to walk away from that life, not enter a program and survive. And, you know, I'm only saying this because it's a fact. I don't know of anybody else that has done that successfully, especially at the level that I reached, because I was at a pretty high level. You know, I didn't know how it was going to work out. I knew that when I walked away, um, people were going to be very upset. You don't walk away from that life. You're not allowed to renounce it. And I had a lot of trouble as a result. But, you know, uh, for me, there's two sides of this. There's a spiritual side, obviously. I'm a person of faith. And the bottom line for me is I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for my life. And over the past 20 years, um, I've seen more evidence of that, and, and I'm very secure with that. It's God's plan. But aside from that, you know, I realize that God never throws you into the fire without preparing you first. So I spent 20 years in that life at a very high level, and I was a good student of the life. I, I observed and I watched, and I, I reached a certain level there. So I knew I had to make changes. You know, one of the horrors about that life, and I don't know if you know this, but you might be in trouble, in serious trouble. Your best friend walks you into a room, you don't walk out again. And unfortunately, I've experienced that in my life with other people. And so I said, okay, um, they're not going to walk me into a room. They're going to have to work to get me. I move out of New York. I would have never made it in New York. Uh, I move way out across the country to California. It's one thing to try to walk somebody into the room. It's another thing to send a hit squad uh, to try to get somebody who knows what's going on. And uh, I never put a house in my name, no utilities. I, uh, I never went to any nightclubs, bad place for me. I know who hangs out there. Somebody sees me, they make a call to New York, they want to be a hero. I walk in the parking lot, boom, I'm gone. Mm. I stopped creating patterns in my life. I never went to the same restaurant every Tuesday night. I never walked my dog every morning at 7 o'clock. So if somebody was scoping me, 
they had a they had a tough time in figuring out where I was. And I was very disciplined in that, very disciplined, because I never sell my former associates short. There was very capable guys there. And then what happened, um, I just outlasted everybody. I mean, who went to jail, who got killed? We had a big war in our family in the early 90s. About 13 guys got killed. Another 20 or something went to jail for life. And I just outlasted everybody. And you know, the, the major thing for me was that I, I never testified against anybody. I didn't send anybody to prison. I didn't put anybody in trouble. Had I done that, it would have been a lot worse. It would have been a lot worse because some people had personal feelings against me. Because when I left, you know, look, I was making a lot of money. A lot of people were earning with me. And when you shut that off, people get upset. And they resented that, you know, especially my boss at the time. But the fact that I didn't hurt anybody over a period of time, that really went in my favor. And um, listen, you know, there's no guarantees. Um, you know, I'm still careful when I go to certain places. Still till today? Oh, yeah. Really? So the level of paranoia is not gone? It's not paranoia. And, I, you know, it's not a macho thing. I don't want you to think that. But I just feel very secure. But, you know, look, God doesn't tell you to be stupid. I can't go back to Brooklyn and say, hey, guys, I'm moving back into the Got neighborhood. It, you know, it would be like thumbing my nose in yeah. my face. So I don't do that. But, you know, listen, I'm a speaker. I'm out in front of thousands of people every week. I've signed books for hundreds of people. I don't know who's on that book line. You know, you never know. You know, I'm not a kid anymore. You know, God has blessed me with, uh, with good things in my life. And um, I think I'll be around for a while longer. But if not, I mean, what could you do? I mean, that's, that's how I look at things. It, it seems, Michael, that you're very resolved. I mean, when, I, when, when speaking to you, there's none of it that you're uncomfortable, which is fascinating. But talking about numbers, I, I, I don't know if everybody really knows what kind of numbers you were bringing in. The numbers I read about, you were making six to eight mil a week, six to eight million per week, and you were selling a half a billion dollars of gas per month, and they said you are the highest money maker mafia boss outside of Al Capone. I mean, there's a lot of people that are making money with you. How did that happen? People think that mob guys sit around in their social clubs and we start to target different businesses. Well, we're going to take that over. We're going to do this. Normally, it doesn't happen that way. What happens is people come to us. People would come to me with all sorts of deals. And it was mostly guys that came inside their company that had a way to make some money and they figured they can do it with me, I can protect them, I can finance them, we have strength, you know, all that. And that's how this happened in the gas business. Some guy came to me at a very small uh, gasoline operation and he said, you know, I have a way to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. It was attractive to me because at that time I didn't like the government. And, you know, my, my targets back then were always bigger companies. I didn't go after small. <laughs> the list of companies I see, I'm like, you didn't yeah. go after small. No, I didn't go after small. I figured the ones that can afford it, no problem. Um, and the government was a huge company. So uh, what happened, he had a couple of other wise guys that were kind of trying to extort him in his business. And um, I was able to solve that for him. And then we went into business together, and I'll tell you how it happened. I, I put somebody with him, because I didn't know him that well, and I said, I'm going to put this fellow with you. We're going to see exactly what you got going on, and we'll try to figure this out. Well, the guy I put with him was a butcher. He was my butcher. Big guy, had a scar across the top of his head. Big Vinny, we called him. So he's coming to my Every Saturday, he would bring uh, meat to my house, right? So this Saturday, he pulls up, and he's got this big box on his shoulder. And I said, what are you doing with all that meat? Are we having a party or something? I don't know about it. He says, hey, chief, it ain't meat. I said, what is it? He says, come on in the kitchen. We go in the kitchen. He puts the box down. He opens it up, $280,000. He said, that's the first week's take. 
in the gas business. And long story short, uh, he really got my attention at that point. I grew that 280 into, uh, at times, almost $8 million a week. 